God intends to praise his children. That statement may sound strange, almost blasphemous to our ears, only because we have not had it clearly taught to us from Scripture. We've been warned against pride and against self-centered egotism, and rightly so. But what else does Scripture say about how God responds to us? There's a wonderful gift awaiting the children of God. He intends to lovingly affirm the good that is in us, wrought by his redeeming grace. That's as much a part of judgment as the corrective aspect, but it has never been well communicated to most of us. Here are only a few verses that refer to God giving praise to his children. John twelve forty three, they loved human praise more than praise from God. John five forty four. How can you believe who seek for glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from God alone? Romans 2.29, speaking of those with a circumcised heart, such a person's praise is not from other people but is from God. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, don't judge anything before it's time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. Then each will receive their praise from God. 2 Corinthians 10, 18. It's not the one who commends himself that is approved, but the one whom God commends. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. These trials will show your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceitful and beauty won't last, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Proverbs 22.4, Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its rewards are riches and honor and life. So it's pretty clear that God loves to affirm and celebrate his children. Our own delight in that activity, both as children receiving it and as parents giving it, is part of our bearing his divine image. That's why we love it so much, because it's such an integral part of him manifested in and to and through us. Because it is potentially bent toward egotism, we often throw out the baby with the bathwater and just reject it wholesale. Some have sadly been raised in Christian families where it was truly believed that to praise a child would almost ensure the ruin of his character. Surely we don't need to explain the foolishness of that mindset or the potential damage that can do to a child's development. Still, Let's not be foolish in the other direction. The same scriptures that tell of the value of praise in our lives also warns us not to put ourselves forward. Luke chapter 14, verses 8 through 11, Jesus said, When you're invited by anyone to a wedding, don't take the highest seat, for one more honorable than you may come, and your host will have to come to you and say, Give this man this place. And then you with shame will take the lowest seat. 
But if you begin at the lowest seat, then your host might say to you, My friend, go up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all. For whoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, quote, When I began to look into the idea of glory, I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton, Dr. Johnson, and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory quite frankly in the sense of fame, but not fame conferred by fellow creatures, but fame with God. Approval, or I might say, appreciation by and from God. And then, when I had thought it over, I saw that this was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the accolade, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lewis goes on then to explain how the lights came on for him on the fact that God enjoys very much to lavish on us his delight and give us praise. He says he realized that to enter heaven must we must become like little children, and nothing is so obvious or healthy as the great pleasure a child enjoys, not in a conceited way, but in a good way, in the praise from his parents or other authority figures. Even dogs and horses have the same joy. It's an element of the eternal, and it is woven into the very fabric of creation. But like all aspects of our humanity, every good has its fallen aspect of danger. The healthy longing for and appreciation of being appreciated can also become a ravenous demand that everyone bow to our ego. We all know of the temperamental prima donna stomping around on the opera stage demanding everyone kiss her ring. We've all heard the funny story of the author who, after boring everyone in the room about his latest book, then finally takes a breath and asks, Enough of my talking. Now, tell me what you think of my book. I wonder how much we laugh at that because we see the truth through the humor or... Do we embrace the humor because it's too close to the truth for us? So we laugh to keep from feeling the sword point. Who can be arrogant with self-glory if we're living in the presence of God? I don't mean we are to be shamed into silence by his worship or reduced to lurking in the shadows by the light of his glory. That's what those who don't know him or love him would think. No, we overcome our temptation to glorify ourselves by becoming aware of the reality of his love for us. We then live in the light of his glory, and he sheds that glory on us as we glorify him. Isaiah 61, verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns himself like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will rejoice over you with singing. You know, praising the works of other people helps overcome envy in us. And envy is one of the most dangerous poisons in the heart of all of us, but especially in the heart of those who are in the arts. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, Let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of others. 
Romans 15.2. Each of us should please our neighbors and seek for their good. Romans 12.14-16. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Have you ever worked in a performance or been a part of a team of some sort where the high-profile players would not associate with the riffraff, the little people, the nobodies in the chorus line or the second string? It's a typical human thing to act like that, and it is sin. God hates it. The Son of God had time for and affection for the lonely woman at the well, the leper, or the throwaway. God in human flesh took time with nobodies. Oswald Chambers said, Don't ever be too good to stoop down to others. God became a baby. One great way to check your ego meter is to notice how you behave towards the little people when you are feeling your own self-importance. 1 Corinthians 13, love is not envious or jealous. It does not seek its own. Now we've already established from Scripture that it's not only all right to desire to be praised, it is a God-given aspect of our nature. So on occasions when we are overlooked or bested by another, or especially when we have done our best and not won the prize, or I suppose worst of all, when we have done our best and no one even acknowledges it, we can expect to have to wrestle with some pain. But we are not allowed to engage in either jealousy or envy. Can you really celebrate the success of a rival who beat you in whatever contest you were engaged in? Is that possible? On a few occasions, I've watched things like American Idol or the finale of some beauty pageant in which the second and third runners-up have had to smile and clap for the winner. And I've always wondered what's going on in the heart of those who now have to take the lower place. Sometimes being second is way harder than to be in the crowd of total losers. In Chariots of Fire, the young Jewish Olympic runner Harold Abrams, who thankfully went on to become a disciple of Jesus and a leader in the British government, found himself in an inner battle of jealousy over Scottish missionary Eric Little and his performance. The hour before his final race, he tells Sam Musambini, his trainer, quote, I have 30 seconds to justify my whole existence. Then what? See, to be jealous of another is to wish you could have what they have, to receive what they've received. And it's rooted in the belief that your worth and your ultimate fulfillment is in that accomplishment. In sports, it is a necessary part of the driving force that makes the very sport worth performing. And we have to be careful not to treat feelings of longing to win, longing to do well, uh, with disrespect. That's kind of foolish. 
Of course there's the, there's a longing or, or you wouldn't have the ability or drive to ever get where you are. We have to be careful not to treat feelings of longing, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat with uh, insensitivity. A performer or an athlete has spent him or herself uh, in getting to the point of being on the pinnacle of their life work. And it would be illogical to deny them either the agony or the ecstasy of their experience. But no feelings of gain or loss ever allows for wishing to take from another, not only because it is a form of stealing, but because to reduce our very being down to that one aspect of our lives, I only have 30 seconds to justify my whole existence. That's a denial of being made in the image of God. There's a lot more to us than any one single event in our lives. Jealousy also refuses to engage in the celebration of another. Really great artists, great athletes, great leaders in any field carry their own private pain before the Lord while still being able to acknowledge and even celebrate the victories of others, even those that they are in rivalry with. They've learned to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, even when the one who's weeping is them. But envy is even more dangerous. It's not only the wish that you had what they have, it's the wish that they don't have it. And taken to its ultimate, envy is a form of murder. You wish not only to take what they have, but to supplant them totally at the expense of their very existence. I've seen this horrible force in action, and it is a demonic thing in its poisonous meanness. And I don't mean to imply that it is caused by the presence of a demon. I mean the human heart becomes so twisted and so deformed in its envy that the envious poison emerges acting like it was a demon without the help of any demon present. Those of us who write or sing or perform are particularly subject to the danger of falling into not only jealousy, but envy. If you want to see a pretty entertaining, but still terrifying picture of what envy does to the human soul of both the one envying as well as the one being envied, take time to watch Amadeus, the story of Mozart and his relationship with Salieri. It's more frightening than some horror movies if you get the point of its message. Otherwise, you might just think it's a movie about Mozart, but <laughs> it's more than that. Envy, James chapter 3, verse 16 says, where envy and jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil practice. You see that in Salieri. You also see it Proverbs 14.30. A tranquil heart gives life, but envy makes the bones rot. You know, really great performers, whether athletes, uh, I speak of athletes and artists because there are so many parallels there, but this can be true in business. It can be true in whatever endeavor anybody is engaged in. 
you are greatly enhanced in your own ability to perform if you are able to not just give credit where credit is due. That's basic. But let's go beyond giving credit where credit is due. Can you celebrate the greatness, the performance of someone else? Truly great performers, athletes, people in any and every form are greatly enhanced in their own abilities when they not only give credit where credit is due. He's an outstanding quarterback, said the quarterback. Or she's a great soprano, said the soprano. You know, it's easy to say he's a great quarterback if you're a linebacker. But what if he's a great linebacker and you're a linebacker? I wonder where the egos clash there. Anyway, that's the most basic level of decency that we're all expected to engage in is is that basic respectful uh, response. But when he or she can truly celebrate the excellence in others, even in his rivals, then their greatness enters into us and our own abilities are increased as well just by the simple joy of watching or listening or being a supporter of others. I'm not a great singer, and I know it. Great singers don't have to work nearly so hard as I do. They don't work. They play. They, I mean, they do work, but the reason they play is because they worked so hard that now they're able to play. And they soar like a bird. And I just get sore in my mind and in my throat after even an hour in a recording session. And uh, I am the cross any producer has to bear in a recording studio. I only sing freely and with joy in a worship service or in a group. I never enjoy singing for singing's sake because it's just simply not my primary calling. But when I hear Josh Groban or Steve Green or Matthew Ward or David Phelps or Jerome Hines or, well, I better stop there, I think two things immediately. First, I think, why can't I sing like that? And then I think, it's like heaven listening to them. Now when I grow up a little bit and be more like the Lord, I will think it is like heaven listening to them. And then probably still have to wrestle a little bit with why can't I sing like that. And I guess in heaven I will just think it's like heaven listening to them because we will be in heaven and hopefully I will no longer have to wrestle with the second thought anymore or maybe I will be able to sing like that too and won't have to wrestle with that thought anymore. <laughs> I don't know. But I hope you're getting my point. Exodus twenty seventeen: You shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. But you sure can enjoy the gift of God in your neighbor that maybe causes them to be able to do things you can't do. And as you enjoy watching them or participating in their pleasure, you're enhanced in your own. Uh, same thing with songwriting. You know, uh, I, I write songs that I really wish other people would sing. Uh, I sing them uh, to get them communicated. But I love it when someone else sings it. But I'll hear some songs and I'll think, oh, that is such a perfectly written song. It is such a great song. Uh, 
But years ago, I used to go, well, I, I should have written that. Well, no, I shouldn't have written it. I shouldn't have even thought that I should have written it. It wasn't given to me. I wasn't listening. I wasn't in position. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the heart. I didn't have the grace. I just had the envy. Anyway, we should always be playing for the audience of one. The many saints of God who labored in the buildings of the great cathedrals are not known to us, but they are certainly known to God. We tend not to want to read the various names listed in the Bible, but they are there, among other reasons, to underscore how God sees the value of the work of each individual and the value of each individual, because he loves each individual and appreciates all they did for him. God is not unrighteous. He will not forget your labor of love for him, Hebrews 6.10 so he gives us an insight into his heart toward all of us individually by recording many individuals in various places in Scripture as a token of what goes on in heaven with each of us. All of us, no matter our personality type or level of giftings or place in life, have the same basic need for individual identity and for that sense of our personhood to be met and affirmed. God knows that since he created it and us. We have already mentioned previously that to be childlike is to need to be praised for who we are. And when we do something special, it is human to want some sort of feedback to affirm it. Yet, that very need, like all others in our lives, can grow its own legs and then begin to demand more and more. It can become a monster for others to have to feed and an inner torturer that beats us to death inwardly with feelings of never measuring up and or never being told enough that we did well. Our forebearers who labored on the cathedrals lived, worked, and died under the shadow of a building they would never live to see completed. Yet it is a study in great art and greater humility that the workmanship in many of these places is exquisitely and meticulously crafted, even in places where no one could see that it had ever been done except God. And no one would know the name of the person who did it except God, because he's the only one they were doing it for. To play or carve or write or sing for only the pleasure of the one who made us that is a great place to arrive to. Most of us don't come by that humility and childlikeness naturally. It is as long a labor as building a cathedral. But to come to that place is a huge deliverance from the unbearable burden of ego-driven competitiveness. Now, I've already mentioned this, but I want to say it again. There's nothing wrong with certain kinds of competitiveness. It's a healthy drive that makes things like sports have the needed energy to be what it is. But like everything, it must be moderated by wisdom and discernment. This is something we have to learn. Philippians 4.21, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in everything. I'm so grateful, Paul said, I have learned the secret. 
But, you know, especially artist types have a struggle. Do any of you know what the Enneagram is? The Enneagram, that's the Greek word for nine, is an ancient psychological map of various personality types. Now, I have not gone in for those sorts of things because I consider them to be pigeonholes of personality, which seems to place me clearly in the number four category of the Enneagram, by the way. When I took the little test to find where I landed, it was clearly a four. And I don't like personality profiles because, number one, sometimes they tell too much about me that are, that's accurate, but also because I don't like to be stuck in cement. He who has begun a good work in us will finish it. When we see him, we shall be like him. And I don't think he's a four. But uh, at the same time, good profiles, like the Enneagram, not uh, don't just put you in a pigeonhole, but they give you directives on how to how to mature. But here's just a few of the questions I had scored very high on. Uh, I don't remember how they measured it. I think it was, you know, a one, one is very low and five is very high. Well, I was five on almost all of these. Number one, people would consider me enigmatic, difficult, and contradictory. And I kind of like that. Number two, I tend to brood over my negative feelings for a long time before getting free of them. Yeah, five. I often feel alone and lonely even when I'm around people I'm close to. If I'm criticized or misunderstood, I tend to withdraw and sulk. See why I don't like these things? I find it difficult to get involved with projects if I don't have creative control. I'm about a 12 on that one. I tend to not follow rules or go along with expectations because I want to put my own special touch on whatever I do. By most standards, I'm fairly dramatic and temperamental. I don't want to talk about that one. Number eight, I tend to spend quite a bit of time imagining scenes and conversations that have not necessarily ever happened. Number nine, I long for someone to rescue me and sweep me away from all this dreary mess. Number ten, when things get tough, I tend to crumble. Number eleven, I can forgive almost anything except bad taste. Number twelve, I don't like to take the lead and I don't like to follow. Just leave me alone and let me do it my way. Number 13, I'm acutely aware of my intuitions, but lack the courage to act on them. Number 14, I create with an audience in my mind. Number 15, I fantasize about great achievements rather than do the work necessary to achieve them. Dreaming I am already there is much more appealing than doing the hard work to actually get there. 
And the thing I most don't like about personality profiles is that they often tend to leave us feeling stuck in their definition of us. But the Enneagram, as I said, offers clear steps toward growth into a more mature character. And of course, most of all, Enneagram or not, the Holy Spirit in us will not allow us to stay in places that are not Christ-like. He will help us come into our full, true identity in Christ. Still, even with that growth, we are basically growing up out of a soil of certain traits, both good and bad, which are really us. And denying that fact only underscores that we are what we are. In Christ, what we are is transformed into a redeemed and godly version of that. And it seems for people like me, fours, it takes a certain work of the cross to bring us to the end of our fallen self so the Holy Spirit can produce the fruit of love and truth in and through us. But your motives matter. I mean, what motivates you? What gets you going? What gets you up in the morning? What keeps you up late at night or whatever? What gets your creative juices going? I quote C.S. Lewis so often in these studies because I owe him so much. We all owe him so much of a a debt of gratitude for not only living through what he did, but communicating it and leaving it for us to draw from. And C.S. Lewis battled with morbid introspection until he learned to stop what he called motive scratching. Such self-focus and concern for one's true motives leads to narcissism. So Lewis simply used his very gift and art, that of writing, to pour out instead of looking in all the time. Now there's there's a place for looking in, but only with your hand in the Lord's hand. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Introspection it's, itself's not wrong. It's morbid introspection. When you're a hole trying to dig itself, or a ditch trying to dig itself, uh, he learned not to consciously be concerned with whether he was a, quote, great writer or not. And in that process... He wrote these words, the desire to achieve greatness as a writer or put in your particular field, whether it's writing or whatever. The desire to achieve greatness as a writer is an idol that must be given up, a sacrifice which, if accepted as death, could become the beginning of new life. Literary ambition is a kind of disease One cannot help longing to get one's thoughts expressed, but wanting to seek a claim is an unworthy motive to be overcome. The longer it takes, the harder it gets. There's a positive pleasure in setting aside one's prideful dreams after truly reaching that place of death to self in this area of idolatry of his heart. Lewis later wrote, One creeps home, tired and bruised, into a state of mind that's really restful when all one's ambitions have been given up. Then one can really, for the first time, say, Thy kingdom come. For in that kingdom there are no preeminences, and a person must have reached a stage of not caring two straws about his or her own status before he or she can enter into it.
Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, masterpiece. The Greek actually is the root word for the word poem. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus in order to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are his workmanship, his masterpiece. Disappointment is a necessary ingredient in dying to selfish egotism. Disappointment, his appointment. While we're working on our masterpiece, God may be working on his. In fact, we know he is, because Scripture says so. And what is his masterpiece? It's us, you and me. So what if our struggle over our work is what he is using to do his work of making us into who he wants us to be? And what if the frustrations we have to wrestle with in our work is part of his work in bringing us into his image? Disappointments when life just doesn't happen as we hoped. Rejection when you're never given a chance. Work overlooked, disrespected, or even stolen. Another gets your leading role. Another gets the award or position or raise. Another simply is better than you and you have to face it. Worse still, another is maybe not better than you but wins the position over you anyway. How will you deal with that before the Lord? How will you deal with it before others? And how will you deal with it within your own heart? How about when life keeps interrupting your work and it begins to look as if you're never going to be able to do what you wanted to do or become who you wanted to become? What about that? Oh, it's very easy to say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll, follow, I'll take up my cross. Whatever it takes, make me like Jesus. Whatever it takes, except this one thing that is the reason I was born. God, for heaven's sakes, this is the reason you created me. So get out of the way and let me fulfill my destiny. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a short story called Leaf by Nigel. Among other reasons, he wrote it as a personal confession. It's the story of an artist who lives among neighbors who have very little use for art. He's trying to paint a picture of a mystical forest and give exact detail and attention to each leaf. But he keeps being interrupted by the daily demands of life and the needs of his neighbor. One particular neighbor, Parrish, is crippled and has a sickly wife. Niggle knows they need his help and often gives it, though always with a deep feeling of frustration that his leaves are being neglected. Niggle is also pressed by the awareness that soon he must make a long journey. He feels time is slipping away with each interruption by his neighbors. His great canvas upon which he is producing his most perfect leaf is needed in a terrible rainstorm to cover the roof of his crippled neighbor parish. And as he sacrifices his best work for them, he catches cold and becomes very ill. He then makes his unavoidable journey 
which of course is death. And finds after some corrective interaction with heavenly messengers that he has been given a parish to care for. As he enters the next dimension, he sees a realm of never-ending layers of beauty, leaves, and forests leading to a mystical set of mountains which are calling to him to come explore. This heavenly place is called Niggles Parish. It had been created in the heavens for him every time he stepped away from his great artistic work and laid his life down for his neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Parrish. There are many layers of meaning in this wonderful story. How often has my very important work been interrupted by the truly very important work? And while my earthly projects lie unfinished or even ruined, What if my work, my very important work, is only the material for the real very important work being completed in a higher dimension? And I am destined to not only one day get to view it, but actually revel in it forever. Or, what if my ego is so central in my vision that I miss the real treasure and end up a fool? Let me talk to you about my treasure box. I have a treasure box. I keep it in the ministry archives. That's an overstuffed closet behind my desk. It's not an object any thief would notice. There are not twinkling, shiny things in it. There are lots of paper notes, but none of government issue. Just love notes, letters, cards. They're absolutely worthless to the world and priceless to me. They were written by those who make up the fabric of my life. They are anniversary cards and letters from Mary written when we had to be apart. Father's Day cards from my children. Notes from close friends and family written either at times of congratulation or of unusual stress and difficulty. They are letters from people I do not personally know but who wanted to let us know that something we taught somewhere once, help save a marriage or restore a wayward son or daughter. More recently, there are emails from people who tracked me down via the internet who wanted to let me know that even in the early and very dark days of my young adulthood when my own life was a moral shambles of confusion and shame, that something I said or did somehow was used by God's mercy to bless them anyway. My hands and my heart tremble when I read these letters, for I know all too well, and maybe not still well enough, the huge responsibility that goes with instructing people in the Lord's name. Psalm 69, verse 6 has been a watchword for me for years. Let none who seek you ever be put to shame because of me, O Lord. Now, no trophy hanging on my wall from some organization, no diploma from any school or university could come anywhere close to being as moving or motivating as the contents of my cardboard treasure box. I pilfer through it on rare occasions when I'm especially drained. I turned to it a few days ago because I realized that slowly I had allowed my heart to become a bit hardened. We have a government out of control, an economy sliding toward oblivion, 
foolish and even damnable false teaching popularized by a thousand pseudo-Christian platforms leading people who knows where. Christians trade marriage partners like hobbies and perversion is now an identity worth Big Brother's protection according to the fairy dust makers in Washington. The enemies once at our gate are now within the gates and even controlling the gates War clouds in the Middle East portend an any-minute firestorm, while many seem to think it's just another episode of 24 on TV. The battle against the murder of babies is winning great campaigns, only to find the baby killers more committed than ever to their gruesome industry. All our cultural amusements, which are all full of steam ahead, cannot provide enough diversion to cover the eruption of the seeds of private pain and poison which are cropping up more and more in families and in individuals' lives. Corruption and instability long kept at bay by a veneer of shallow civility is the stuff of every evening news headlines now as shrinking prosperity reveals the house of cards that is our nation. There's no time to waste Surely I need to address these huge, vitally important issues, don't I? I'm failing as a watchman on the wall if I don't sound the trumpet. I am responsible to shout the warning, so I must keep focus on the battle. After all, it is incredibly important work, right? But in the midst of my very important writing here, in the depth of my very important creative sanctuary, Kira, just had the audacity to enter in to ask me to cut up her apple. My very important thinking process, which I turned into very important writing, is now rudely interrupted by the sound of our youngest granddaughter, Maya. She can't tolerate a dirty diaper for more than 30 seconds and makes it known by the means of that God-given power of an infant to scream in a way that causes a sound to strike your spinal cord that runs up the back of your body and explode in your skull in just the right tones to get you to respond. Just as I was assured that I was not being considered for the diaper detail, I'm usually not, and was turning back to my very important writing, Mary, who of all people should know not to invade my sacred space while I'm birthing prose that will save humanity, or at least the Western world, calls down the hall to remind me I need to return a phone call. Men especially tend to seek so much of our sense of value from our work, and rightly so. God intended that to be true to some degree. But when I can't work, when my mind is stalemated by anger, grief, exhaustion, and overload, and I turn to my little treasure box for perspective, I do not find one of my great epistles in my treasure box. I find little short writings from others, crayon works of art and little cards, once carefully chosen and lovingly signed, that together tell a much greater story than all I ever write. It's the story of how, in the day-by-day drudgery of living, a supernatural power enters in, riding on the back of the most simple and mundane objects, another perspective from another world. The power that made the worlds condescends into ours through the notes of a loved one or the crayons of a child 
or a wife's anniversary card. And these little objects somehow provide meaning where there has been bewilderment, energy where there has been exhaustion, joy, overrides sorrow, and awakens strength out of weakness. The angel Gabriel came to the prophet Daniel when he was exhausted to the point of fainting and brought a message from God. Daniel said, he spoke and I was strengthened. My angelic messengers are stored in a cardboard box, but they are no less powerful. When I read them, I can say just as surely, he spoke and I was strengthened. Now that the very important work I was trying to write has been edited by apples and diapers and phone calls, I need you to forgive me for changing my message to you now. You will miss out on the vitally important document I was writing, and you will instead be exposed to the core of what is crying up from inside of me. I guess that'll be your loss. (laughs) But just how much of what we do is really so important? Only God knows. I think of how many long demanding hours my record producer, Tom Howard, and I spent working on the music that had to get out because it was so important. And I still believe it is. But now, with Tom's passing, I wonder what I would trade for all those years of work in exchange for hearing Tom laugh again, to tell him again how I hate sushi because it tastes like dead fish, and that a real American would be eating a hamburger instead, or to discuss minor details of theology while rewriting a violin line. I didn't disregard the little moments. I just didn't give them the attention they deserved because I didn't know they were little moments. If I had only known, Tom would not be here to demand I try sushi one more time. We can't help not knowing the future, of course, can we? That's why the psalmist wrote, teach us to number our days so that we can present to you a heart of wisdom, Psalm 90. See, The point is not to know a future that is hidden to us, but to recognize that we don't know it and must be led by the Spirit into what is deserving of our best intentions and what is not. I will get up now from my very important desk and cut up an apple. Maybe instead of feeling interrupted by the baby's cry striking my lower spine, I will be thankful A more qualified person is changing the diaper. After all, a wise man knows what are and are not his gifts. Most of all, maybe I will show some respect and appreciation to Mary for her gentle, consistent ability to keep our life orderly instead of sighing loudly as a way of complaining that I was busy. Can't the phone call wait? Maybe I will learn to follow her example and show proper respect to the person waiting for my return phone call. Maybe I will notice the sacredness of the ordinary instead of having an eruption over my interruption. Because maybe a million years from now, no one will remember or care what great work I wrote, but it may matter a great deal whether I learned to show respect, honor, and affection to my wife, my waiting children, or the stranger on the phone who may make a total change for the good because I did not view them as an interruption but as a part of the meaning of it all. Can you picture anyone in the world to come reading a nightlight newsletter? (laughs) 
But there may be all sorts of treasures in the world to come that was formed out of the raw material of loving care and self-sacrifice we expressed in the so-called little things or in our willingness to offer our time that is taken away from our very important work and given to one who in our fleshly blindness we may perceive as unworthy of that gift of our time. Perspective is one of the greatest and rarest and most valuable of gifts. The power to see what is truly valuable in the moment that it most needs to be recognized in order to give things their proper due is a faculty beyond measure. And we will always miss the vital if we are so busy doing our important work that we fail to stop and humbly ask for the supernatural eyes that only the Spirit can give. So, what if you don't have a box of your own or anything similar? Then maybe you could become the supplier of someone else's box. It's not hard to find someone not far from you that could greatly benefit from a note, a card, or a visit. The only way I ever found my way out of certain kinds of deep pain and aloneness was to go to the saddest wing of the local hospital and look for a place to touch the pain of someone else. Many who knew Dr. Robert Lindsay, the great pastor and scholar of Jerusalem, often asked him why he didn't spend more time writing. After all, he was a great scholar. He had forgotten more valuable Hebraic revelation than many would ever learn. But Dr. Lindsay was too busy taking care of people, loving them, guiding them, teaching them. They are his books, his epistles, known and read of all men. To borrow a phrase from another Hebrew teacher, I don't think God is looking for great men because there really aren't any. I don't think he's interested in our doing great things because how would we measure what that is, this side of reality? He's only interested in our seeing the greatness of his person and the greatness of his grace towards us. Then, in humility, awakened in us by that vision we will learn to see the meaning in the moment, the holiness in the humanity, and to treat life and those we live life with with proper love and respect. If we do that, then we will end up doing great things, at least in the eyes of the only one whose opinion really matters. Thanks for listening.